listeners. Welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is, I've got to check on the calendar here, Saturday, the 20th of March, 2021 in Seoul, Korea. And joining me via Zoom from his home in the United States, where it is still a day earlier, which is Friday the 19th, is Dr. Benjamin Young to talk about his new book on North Korea and the Third World. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask all of our listeners to do me a favor and please leave a review wherever you found this podcast, whether that's on iTunes or an Android-based platform. Uh, our reviews are a little bit dated, and so it's good to have some up-to-date ones there so that people can find out about the podcast. And do please share it with your colleagues, friends, and even enemies. Secondly, check out NK News, your specialist source for trusted information on North Korea. Get behind the headlines at nknews.org. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's more affordable than you think, and it helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. In fact, if you sign up as an annual member, it's less than a dollar a day, so do check that out. All right, my guest today, Dr. Benjamin Young, is a newly minted PhD and assistant professor at Dakota State University. He holds a PhD from George Washington University and focuses his research on modern career, Cold War international history, and Marxism in the Third World. He's also written many articles for the NK News website over the years, so you can find those in the archives. And he's got a newly published first book entitled Guns, Guerrillas, and the Great Leader. Good alliteration. I'm always a fan of it. North Korea and the Third World, 1956 to 1989, published by Stanford University Press and available at all good booksellers online or off. Thanks for joining me on the line today, Benjamin. What's the recommended retail price on your book? Uh, thanks, Jacko, uh, for having me on. Um, so my book is, I, I, tr I try to make it as affordable as I could. It's, it's only $28 on Amazon and on the um, Stanford University Press website. And that so, is very affordable. I've seen some published by other published, academic publishers, uh, one starting with an R, quite famously, uh, where the paperback books are as much as 70 US dollars. So you've done very well there making it affordable. Yeah, I I try to I try to do that. So yeah, it's a, it's a soft cover book and it's um for only twenty eight dollars, but the hard cover is a lot more expensive. But you sure. know, I've been a long time listener of the NK News podcast, and I've been a big fan of of your hosting of the podcast. So I'm I'm excited to talk to you and to be on today. Well, thank you. It's great to finally have you on. Uh, were you inspired by Jared Diamond when you made the title of your book? So, you know, people ask me that, yeah. and I really wasn't. I read his book. I wasn't the biggest fan. Um, I just like the alliteration because my book, you know, kind of focuses on guns, gorillas, and obviously Kim Il-sung, the great leader. So, yeah. you know, the it was actually a title that I pitched to the press, and they liked it. So they uh -huh. stuck with it. Usually they're the, the editors are the ones who come up with their own title, but they actually stuck with mine. So right. I <laughs> saved the title. I was going to use it for my dissertation, but I gave my dissertation a boring one, and, this, and then this book was what grew out of my dissertation. So That's I, the best uh, way. I was glad to, to keep the, uh, the creative one. That's the principles of capitalism 101, folks. Always make your title as commercial as possible. Uh, you've also, not as well as great alliteration, you've followed the rule of threes, which is uh, also important. Or not, not important, but helpful for remembering things, and it sounds snappy. Yes. I um, never took a marketing class, but everyone that I've talked to has said that the, the title is great. And yes. I, just, I just nod my head and say, okay. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Now, could you summarize the central argument of your book? How does North Korea relate to the third world? I My basic argument is that third world, worldism formed the national identity of North Korea. And there are two, it's kind of a simple argument, but if you untangle that sentence that I just said, what mm -hmm. was the third world? And it really was a post-colonial order of decolonized states that saw each other as kind of allies in this fight against global imperialism and colonialism. And North Korea was in a kind of a peculiar spot because on one hand, it was a member of the socialist second world that was led by the Soviet Union, but it was also a post-colonial state. It had undergone uh, brutal Japanese colonization. It also fought the Americans in a standstill in a three-year-long war. And so it really did kind of touch one foot in the second world and another foot in the third world. And I've just found that a lot of, a lot of scholars have previously looked at North Korea's relations with the Soviet Union and China, uh, but not a lot of research has been done on how North Korea interacted with Southeast Asian countries and um, African countries. And that is something that I always thought was interesting is how did this seemingly isolated country in Northeast Asia become such a global actor? I argued that it wasn't just a kind of a, um, a facet of who North Korea was, but it really formed their identity. These days, you don't hear the term uh, third world or even third worldism very much. It uh, seems to have fallen a bit out of favor in, in, in exchange for uh, what uh, the developed versus the developing world or those kinds of terms. Tell us why it's important to, or in your book, to stick with the, uh, the old term. Yeah, so I guess the politically correct term nowadays is global south, but I, I purposely avoid that because that's not what North Korea referred to when they were, when they were um, discussing relations with African, Latin American, and Southeast Asian countries, they actually did use the word third world. Mm. And um, they use it in a positive way. It Nowadays, if you ask, uh, you know, American politicians say like, oh, we don't want to be like a third world tin pot dictatorship. So mm. it has a very negative connotation. But it wasn't always that way. It was actually a term of empowerment. It was a term of solidarity. Groups along around the world, like the Black Panthers, the the um, Irish um, dissidents, and uh, North Korean government officials used the term third world in a positive way. And so that's why I stuck with the, um, the term third world. And to mm. them, the third world wasn't a geographic region. It was a global project and a movement. Okay, and how did that form the third worldism? How did that form a part of North Korea's identity during the Cold War? North Korea, the way that it the way that it communicates to its citizens is through uh, written publications, and the literacy rate, as you are probably aware, is very high in North Korea. Yeah, and North Koreans read a lot, and one of the ways in which they constructed this. Uh, imagined community of third worldism is by talking a lot about what was happening in Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia, particularly during the Vietnam War. And they talked about the, the national liberation struggles, the kind of U.S. imperialism, what was going on around the world, because I think this was kind of a way for the North Korean government to convey to its citizens that you're not alone mm -hmm. in this, like, 
struggle for constructing a um, independent socialist society, that there's others around the world who are also kind of going against like um, Goliath in the United States. So it was a way for the North Korean leaders to mobilize the masses. It was a way for them to also actually make their citizens a little less isolated, kind of have them believe that they are part of a of a wider community of like-minded folks. So it's kind of a, well, international solidarity building measure. Yes, definitely. Yeah, internationalism was a really big part of it. And I, and I think that's so interesting because you hear a lot nowadays, like North Korea is isolated. You yes. hear, you know, it's the hermit state, reclusive state, yada, yada. But it's not, it wasn't always that way. And I would even kind of contest the notion that it is totally isolated now. Obviously, the pandemic has, has really made North Korea isolated. But before that, it it was quite active around the world, just not in the traditional Western liberal order. Mm. But when you look, if you go to North Korea these days, they use the word uh, solidarity or tangyeol, uh, mainly to mean only an internal, you know, sort of chiefly ethno-nationalist, uh, uh, you know, Koreans among Koreans kind of uh, solidarity. So it's interesting to see that there were you know, these these two levels or two planes of solidarity, one the internal one and one sort of an internationalist one. Do you see a, a tension there in, in North Korean writings or in the great leader's speeches between these sort of an internal national, uh, sorry, internal solidarity and external solidarity? Yeah, well, North Korea during the 1990s, really, that's when they turned up the nationalistic rhetoric and its propaganda. Before the collapse of the communist bloc, before the the um, breaking down of the Berlin Wall, there was a lot more emphasis on like this international solidarity. And there was a lot more of these kind of cultural and political exchanges with third world nations. For example, African students studied in North Korea in the 1980s. I've interviewed uh, a few of them and they kind of look back at their education, North Korea as being quite good, but mm. they didn't have the best kind of quality, you know, resources there. Um, so North Korea, it's not a stagnant country, it changes, it's ideological output changes, the way mm. that it perceives itself in the world changes. And after the collapse of the com communist bloc, they really kind of turn inwards and they thought, all right, like we are the kind of the last outpost of socialism. We are the kind of the, the last cry for the Marxist-Leninist worldview. And that is that is kind of kind of ironic in the sense that that Marxism-Leninism was an internationalist mm. ideology, but North Korea really ratcheted up the, the nationalist rhetoric and and, you know, there are contradictions in North Korean ideology. You can even, I mean, there's contradictions in every country's ideology. Sure. You, if you even look at the United States, I mean, like on one hand, we, you know, we promote human rights and democracy mm. in the world, yet for most of our history, you know, racism and um, a lack of freedoms has been, has been in place for people of color in this country. And North Korea's ideology also has its own contradictions and, and, um, you know, sometimes that it doesn't totally make sense. And, and sometimes these kind of contradictions are just part of a country's output. Mm. Now, the blurb on the back of your book has uh, North Korea as transforming from model development state to reckless terrorist nation. Uh, that last label there, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so. 
And the what the event that really changed North Korea and how it was perceived in the third world was the 1983 Burma bombing. What happened in 1983 was that South Korean president and a group of the Secret Service and his wife had accompanied him to Burma. Burma was a neutral country uh, during this period of time. It was really non-aligned, um, but North Korean agents were sent to the country and they bombed the South Korean, uh, I think it was limousines that were taking um, Chunduan to a speech and they killed a number of South Korean government officials, including the South Korean president's wife. The president himself was not affected, but this really hurt the North Korean presence in the third world because a lot of countries were, were really surprised at just how reckless North Korea was, that they used the territory of a foreign neutral country to conduct an assassination attempt against a, a rival that is just around 90 miles from Pyongyang. And so mm -hmm. it was kind of this exportation of the Korean conflict outside of the Korean peninsula. And so a number of countries actually cut off diplomatic ties with Pyongyang after the 1983 Burma bombing, like Costa Rica, uh, the Comoros, um, Samoa in the South Pacific. There's also a number of countries that decided not to open consulates or embassies to North Korea. They thought, nah, we better not, because what the North Korean embassies were doing around the world during this time is they started to traffic in illicit goods, counterfeit goods, and North Korea was really gaining a reputation around the world as a really reckless and terroristic actor. And as we have saw recently in Malaysia, that kind of policy towards the third world has continued. What do you think of the old uh, the old adage that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter and that North Korea was trying to free the South Korean citizens under the yoke of American imperialism and that sort of thing? That's probably how the North Koreans perceived it. But um, for the majority of humanity, that's not how they perceived it. I mean, think about think about this. If you were a Burmese citizen and your territory had just been used for a conflict that really had nothing due to you, that's not, you're not going to be happy with that. Mm. And the Burmese government was really unhappy with North, North Korea after 1983, and they cut off relations. And you see that, you see this like the same event happening now in Malaysia. Just this week, I read that Malaysia decided to extradite a North Korean citizen to the United States because of the uh, assassination of Kim Jong-un's half-brother. It's just this kind of continuation North Korea's behavior towards these third world neutral countries is basically kind of like your, your fair play. We can take advantage of you because you have relatively lax enforcement. We ha you have less hostile policies towards us. Some, Malaysia actually had a um, visa-free option for North Korean citizens, and yeah. that was quite unique. And so you see like you see the... It, it's one thing that like if North Korea wants to be a um, a fair and equal player in the world, but they, they don't act that way. And they do things like use WMD grade nerve agents in international airports. Mm. And that event could have been a whole lot worse. Honestly, only one, unfortunately, one private citizen died who was Kim Jong-un's half-brother. But imagine the other people got infected yeah. with that WMD grade nerve agent. That would have been a, it could have been really bad. So yeah, I do think North Korea is a reckless and terroristic actor. Okay, uh, let's talk a bit about the non-aligned movement. Uh, what was it, or what is it, if it still exists, and why did North Korea actively seek to join it? 
Yeah, so the non-aligned movement, it's actually still around today. It's kind of like um, a half-hearted version of what it once was, but it was uh, initially led by Joseph Tito, the um, leader of Yugoslavia, and it was a way to form a block outside of the Western bloc and the Soviet-led socialist bloc. It was kind of a way for post-colonial countries to have a political movement that could have a voice in international politics. North Korea really wanted to be the head of this movement. And after Tito died, there was kind of like a, um, a struggle for influence in this movement. A lot of countries were not happy with the way North Korea was conducting itself in the non-aligned movement because they kept pushing Kim Il-sung's personality cult. They kept kind of pushing the cultish leader leader worship that is uh, an inherent part of the North Korean ideological system. And that's something that comes across a lot in my book is, is the fact that North Korea's domestic personality cult had an effect on its foreign policy. I really and have to jump in and ask there, did they expect that message to sell in other countries? I think they did. I, th I really do think they did. But part of it is also just the way the system is. I'm sure that there probably were some diplomats and government officials who thought it was silly, but you're not in a system like that. You're not going to combat the official word coming from Pyongyang. Mm. You're not going to voice dissent. But for the most part, they I think that the North Korean government really did think like Kim Il-sungism was going to take off as a global ideology and that North Korea was kind of going to become this third world capitalist capital of revolutionary socialism. Um, and they did all sorts of kind of quirky things. Like, for example, they placed ads in a lot of African newspapers. It actually got so got so bad that Nigerian newspaper editors started taking advantage of the North Koreans and, and ratcheting up prices so that North Koreans would pay more. And it's, it's North Korea, they also uh, had movie screenings, they had uh, photo exhibitions in a lot of countries around the world. They they also kind of they kind of advertise themselves in a soft power kind of way. So nowadays you mm. hear a lot about South Korean soft power and it's and K-pop and K-dramas, but North Korea actually had kind of its own exportation of soft power during the Cold War era. It just obviously never took off. And it also gave more uh, concrete and sometimes. Uh, practical assistance too, didn't it, in the form of uh, military training and medical assistance and, of course, the uh, statues and monuments to African countries. North Korea is very active in Africa. If you look at kind of the three areas of the third world project, Africa, Latin America, and uh, Southeast Asia, it was really Africa that captivated the North Korean consciousness. And in Africa, North Korea sent weapons, they also built cadre training schools. They also helped to train special forces for leaders in Africa. Mm. So for example, in Zimbabwe, uh, the North Korean government sent around 100 military trainers to assist Mugabe and yeah. this, this North Korean trained brigade, which was under the direct guidance of Mugabe, then went on to kill uh, they, the estimated number is 20,000 people oh in, a, in an, um, a region of Zimbabwe called Mete Bailey land, which was kind of the home of Mugabe's political rivals. 
So it was, this was known as the North Korean trained fifth brigade. Yeah. And North Koreans were all, were all around Africa during the cold war era. They were building schools. They were building palaces. They were helping to train special forces. They were even building airports. And this kind of North Korean footprint in Africa has not been really studied. You you Mm. hear a lot about Cuba. You hear a lot about the Soviet Union. You even hear about East German influence in Africa. But there hasn't been a lot of research on what North Korea was doing there. And they had doctors there too, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And they still do. I think it was a Radio Free Asia report that looked at North Korean doctors in Tanzania. But what was happening is that the North Korean doctors are selling bogus like herbal medicines to treat serious diseases like tuberculosis. And it was just a way for the regime to garner money. But during the during the Cold War era, I mean, there was like a degree of like humanitarian selfless aid that North Korea was giving to Africa. It wasn't just purely for self-interest, like what North Korea does now. There was kind of like, you know, we were once colonized. We were once really struggling. Um, you know, now it's our turn to help you. But was it all um, selfless or was there also an element of, uh, you know, we're doing this because it will boost North Korea's prestige or it'll help us in the competition against South Korea at the United Nations? I mean, what were they, what was uh, Kim Il-sung really hoping to achieve with this uh, influence over third world countries? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely layered. I mean, one thing was um, kind of this anti-colonial solidarity, but Mm. perhaps even more important than that was that inter-Korean competition was huge. North Korea was competing with South Korea for influence around the world, for diplomatic recognition. In addition, they wanted to raise the profile of Kim Il-sung. They thought that he should be kind of a this world champion of anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism. So it was kind of a, a um, three-tiered approach as to why North Korea was so active mm. in Africa. Now, Ethiopia is an interesting case, isn't it? Because it fought on the side of the United Nations during the Cold War. So even now, um, Ethiopians descended from Korean War veterans. I think they're eligible for uh, scholarships to study in South Korea. But there was a time when North Korea had a, a friendly relations with Ethiopia. How did that come about? Yeah. So, yeah, Ethiopia is interesting because Ethiopian soldiers did fight on uh, alongside um, South Korea during the Korean War, uh, there's actually a um, a tribute to Ethiopian um, contributions to the Korean War. So you can go to Ethiopian Coffee House. It's somewhere in, in South Korea, huh? but it actually pays homage to like Ethiopian contribution to uh, the Korean War. Um, huh? Never been to that coffee house, but I did. I did look it up when I when I was. Um, in the area. Um, But anyways, yeah, so what happened is there was a major regime change in Ethiopia and a kind of a Stalinist military junta known as the DARE came into power in the 80s. And they were really brutal. The leader of this Ethiopian military junta, he was able to secure aid from the North Koreans. And the North Koreans were um, trying to make money via arms deals. And so Mm. they really tried, they really became highly active in Ethiopia. And um, what was always kind of interesting in terms of North Korea's policy to to Africa is if South Korea was active in a country such as Gabon, for instance, North Korea would try to counter that. So you have in this relatively small country of Gabon, there was a huge building 
it was the largest building in the time. It was like a, a skyscraper. It was built by a South Korean company. The North yeah. Korean came in. They tried to build a school uh, for the Gabonese government and military. And then the South Koreans tried to counter that. And so they actually had some South Korean owned shops there. The North mm-hmm. Koreans tried to build their own kind of shops as well. So you have this kind of like really interesting back and forth where these countries become microcosms of the inter-Korean conflict. And this is something that I just find so fascinating that the Korean conflict was not something that was just a Korean Peninsula event. It was a world event and it played out all over the world, even in seemingly obscure countries like Gabon. We often hear that uh, during the Sino-Soviet rivalry that uh, Kim Il-sung cleverly played off the Soviets against the Chinese and managed to extract the maximum of concessions from both of them. I, I kind of get the feeling that it may have been uh, a little bit similar, but on a smaller scale in Africa, where perhaps Gabon was playing off the South Koreans against the North Koreans in order to extract the maximum benefit from both. Yeah, there was a there was agency definitely on the part of um, third world governments when it came to the North Koreans. Like, for example, newspaper editors being willing to play off just how desperate what North Korea was for uh, putting ads in newspapers. Um, so there was like newspapers. Um, I believe there was a newspaper in Tanzania. It had so many ads that was that were bought by the by Pyongyang that it, they actually became known as the North Korean Times. And you have like a lot of really kind of strange events like that where the North Koreans didn't understand the local culture mm. and they didn't understand the local conditions. They were just pushing a line that came from Pyongyang the nature of the North Korean system was you don't voice dissent. So these these diplomats were in a tough position because they right. most likely knew they were wasting their money. Right. They weren't going to be able to convince the you know Tanzanian peasant that Kim Il Sungism was the was the uh, was a good developmental system for them. Do, do you happen um, to know if at that stage the North Korean embassies were supposed to be economically self sufficient and raising their own money to spend on these pointless advertisements, or were they still uh, receiving enough budget from Pyongyang to take care of these things at that time? I think they were they were receiving money from Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a report. There's a report from the Wilson Center in the 1980s that North Korea had spent uh, more than 100 million dollars on lobbying efforts Goodness. in the third world. Um, and there was North Korean high-level defectors who defected to South Korea in the late 80s, early 90s, who talked about just how much aid to the third world was costing Pyongyang and making yeah. North Korea's economic troubles even worse. My, right. my, um, you know, there's no definite date on when North Korea stopped sending uh, subsidies to its diplomats and when these diplomats had to become self-sufficient but my guess is it most likely happened in the mid-1990s when Uh, the um, public distribution system in north korea came crashing down with the famine now with all the uh, anti-racist and anti-imperialist discourse uh, north korea not only attracted some uh, fans and admirers in africa but also among the african-american community specifically i'm thinking about the uh, the black panthers who uh, had a, a sort of a dalliance with north korea for a time there could you tell us a little bit about that yeah so the black panther north korea relationship has been one of my longest research topics of interest i actually wrote my master's thesis on this topic and Quite honestly, I think out of everything I've I've researched, that topic is still the one that most captivates people. Could there be a book in that one? 
Uh, I don't think there's enough out there. I've researched all there is on that. I'd be, I'd be, um, I mean, I, I've really kind of <laughs> done that topic to death. Right. I, I really find it interesting. I think a lot of other people also find it interesting because on one hand, you have a group of African-American radicals who were mainly um, living in U.S. urban city, cities that saw North Korea on the other side of the world as a socialist ideal. And the leader of the Black Panthers who thought North Korea was a great thing going was Eldridge Cleaver. He actually went to North Korea in 1968. He went to a conference there. Uh, and he thought North Korea was the most revolutionary society out of mm. any other place in the world. And you have to imagine that during this 1968, the Soviet Union was quickly becoming seen as a bad faith actor mm. in the third world because of the invasion of Czechoslovakia. To the Black Panthers, North Korea was the small country that had resisted U.S. imperialism, fought off the Japanese colonialists. So it kind of had this rigor and this kind of like tough-mindedness that the Black Panthers wanted to emulate. And Eldridge Cleaver in particular really admired Juche. He, he talked about Juche. He, there's even a, a quote from him in the Black Panther newspaper. He says, uh, Juche for us, you know, you have, to, you have to do what you have to do to help the revolution. He talks about how we, we might even have to use chicken bones and pork chops and syringes as weapons. That is Juche, doing what you have to do to help our revolution. Did he claim to understand Juche? Because there's not a lot of foreigners who can. I mean, I remember, of course, uh, Bruce Cummings famously claimed that no foreigner can understand Juche. But of course, Brian Meyer said it's all nonsense anyway. So did Eldridge Cleaver actually have a real grasp of what it was? Well, he wrote a book up. Uh, he wrote, he didn't write a book, but he he wrote a foreword to a book called Juche that was a collection of Kim Il-sung's writings. And Juche at this period of time, it was really part of like the third world developmental discourse, like mm. self-reliance, self-sufficiency, autarky, um, national self-defense. This was actually all part of the developmental discourse that was going on around the third world. Mm. Uh, in my book, I talk about how a lot of countries were actually relating their own indigenous concepts to Juche. Uh, for example, in Tanzania, they have a concept called Ujama. And mm. it basically amounts self-reliance. So when the Tanzanian government officials met with North Korean officials, they talked about, oh, how similar our ideologies are. And uh, same thing happened with uh, Mobutu Sese Seko. He met with the North Koreans and he talked about, oh, you know, we are so similar. We have our own kind of, he called it authenticity. And he's like, you know, this is really similar to your concept and uh, values as well. And Eldridge Cleaver, he thought that Juche was just something that was important for the Black community of the United States, where you have to depend on your own resources, and you shouldn't look to the white community uh, for help. Because what was happening to the Black Panthers during this period of time is there was a schism between the Huey Newton faction and the Eldridge Cleaver faction. And Eldridge Cleaver faction thought, we don't need to focus a lot on the local stuff, we need to find these international allies. We need to not rely on uh, white radicals as allies. We need to just depend on the black community itself. Huey Newton disagreed with that approach. So part of that is it fit with the discourse that the Black Panther Eldridge Cleaver led faction was advancing within their own party discourse. And that was something that happened all over the, all over the world is that these third world leaders were able to kind of 
speak juche. And I use that, I use the term speaking juche is that they kind of entered into the similar lexicon with the North Koreans. Mm. And that was one of the ways in which they kind of had similar discourse and rhetoric and official statements. Just briefly, before we go on to the next topic, how did the uh, the romance between the Black Panthers and Kim Il-sung end? Well, a lot of it had to do with the fact that the Black Panthers were being infiltrated by the FBI. There was a lot of basically agents that were being put into the party by the U.S. government. Yeah. Um, and the Black Panthers started to basically sever from the inside. Eldridge Cleaver was running from the government all around the world. He went to Cuba, he went to Algeria, he went to North Korea. Um, he was running from the police and he quickly became kind of an, uh, a marginalized figure within the party. And Huey Newton was also in prison. And so there was a lot of internal troubles with the Black Panthers. And that is uh, what really ended the relationship with the North Koreans. But the North Koreans, I mean, um, they really did provide Eldridge Cleaver with a lot of help. For example, his wife gave birth in a Pyongyang hospital. The famous maternity hospital where all the tourists used to go to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she she was living there for a period of time. And um, it, it does seem like that would have been a safe place for him to seek asylum, uh, as did uh, former Cambodian king, uh, later Prince Sihanouk. You've got a section in your book about, about him as well. Uh, that's a fascinating story in and of itself, how Kim Il-sung ended up backing uh, the, the Khmer Rouge in its own war against the Vietnamese, whom it had previously backed in the, Viet, the, the war against the United States. Uh, I'd love to talk about that, but there's unfortunately not enough time, so I'll have to move on to the next topic. Uh, but I do encourage listeners to check out your book there, uh, because there, there's so much um, that we, you know, we can't deal with today, but there's so much fascinating material there. Uh, North Korea has always consistently spoken very strongly against imperialism and colonialism as a former colonial state. Uh, and one of the most regular uh, and constant criticism it makes against the United States is against its imperial use and abuse of power. Uh, and at the same time, North Korea during the Cold War was economically dependent on both the Soviets and the Chinese. Did Kim Il-sung ever bring any explicit or implicit charges of neo-imperialism or neo-colonialism against either the Soviet Union or uh, communist China? Yes, he did. He, he really was... Um critical of the Soviet Union um, at times. Mm. And what I mean at times is um, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, um, North Korea actually supported the Soviet invasion. They didn't really dispute the fact that the Afghanistan uh, socialist government there was basically a Soviet puppet state. They actually did support the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and a lot of this had to do with the ebbs and flows of North Korea's relations with China and the Soviet Union. For example, during the Cultural Revolution, um, North Korea was really quite scared of Maoist extremism pouring over into the North Korean borders. Uh, and so that's when North Korea was close to the Soviets. And when the Chinese were providing a lot of kind of providing more aid to the North Koreans, that's when they cozied up to them. And sometimes the Soviets would would kind of not provide as much aid as the North Koreans would like. And so that it was kind of a back and forth. But I would have to say that North Korea, they were always pretty good at playing the two communist superpowers off of each other. 
And it was just kind of part of how they're able to survive because that was their goal is, was survival of the Kim family regime. Now, these days, of course, we're seeing in Africa uh, the Chinese doing uh, very well in terms of um, increasing economic and soft power influence over countries, perhaps in a way that, you know, Kim Il-sung might once have envied if he'd been, you know, if he'd lived long enough to see that. Um, do you know if, if more recently North Korea makes any criticisms about uh, Chinese activities in, in Africa? There is a big difference between North Korea and Chinese influence in Africa and is that North Korea could never get to the extent that China's influence in Africa has gotten because China's economy is so much bigger than North yeah. Korea's ever could be. Sure. In addition, the population of China is so much bigger than North Korea's. And that, is, that was actually something that appealed to a lot of African countries that North Korea couldn't be a, a colonialist power because it really just, it didn't, it wasn't big enough. Um, and so when it comes to North Korea's perception of Chinese influence in Africa, they're pretty mum. They, I mean, they're, they're not going to upset Beijing mm. over something like that. At the end of the day, North Korea's economy, 80% of it depends on China. They know that they can't go too far in criticizing the Chinese Communist Party and right. specifically its foreign policy because that's that's where they get a lot of their most of their money from. Now you, you mentioned earlier that the 1983 uh, Rangoon bombing uh, by North Korea uh, in an attempt to kill the South Korean president and his cabinet that that led to a great loss of attractiveness as a model to third world nations uh, was. Was this it? I mean, was it all at once or did it lose allies and admirers slowly over time? It was it was slowly over time. Part of it. Part of this was um, also the fact that South Korea was just really becoming economically powerful. Mm. Uh, the 1988 Olympics in Seoul was really a revelation to the world that South Korea was going to be different than it once was. And North Korea is kind of last attempt to rescue some sort of prestige was the 1989 World Festival of Youth and Students, uh, as you know. And But that was really a disaster for North Korean status in the world. My book kind of reveals some interesting details of what happened there. But basically, uh, a lot of the guests from the Scandinavian countries, they were they were talking about human rights in the, in the opening ceremonies there. They were talking about the Tiananmen Square massacre, protesting yeah. that. And the North Koreans hosts were not happy uh, with the Scandinavian countries. What about and third world countries at that festival? Did they uh, have any negative experiences? There, the documents that I got about this, mainly they were from the British archives and they talked a lot about just how much the Scandinavians were upsetting the North Koreans. But a lot of the guests at the World Festival of Youth and Students, they weren't happy with the lack of access to like normal North Korean people. Right. They were really kind of holed up in their hotels and their flats, and they weren't able to interact with the North Korean people like they wanted to. And so a lot of people came away from that just thinking, wow, that was a terrible waste of time and money. And North Korea built so many facilities for that event. They built the Mayday Stadium, which is a, holds 150,000 people. At the time, I believe that was the largest stadium in the world. Yeah. Um, they also built 20,000 apartments to house the guests. They spent a ton of their own money. 
And uh, a lot of the people that went to that event came away thinking like, why, why, why did you spend so much money on that? And it was really kind of this last ditch effort to rescue some sort of North Korean prestige in the world. So Robert Mugabe actually gave a speech at that event. Um, but that kind of just tells you how out of touch North Korea was beginning to, to be is that, you know, if you're looking for someone who has a good reputation around the world, you don't, you don't invite Robert Mugabe. Wasn't he still uh, in the good books back then in 1989? I think it would, I remember that uh, Robert Mugabe, uh, you know, really lost his reputation in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s when he started to, uh, uh, you know, when, when the sort of the, the economy tanked and the, uh, the hyperinflation happened. I, I thought he was still uh, somewhat respected, at least at the time of the, the Pyongyang Festival. I'm no uh, scholar of Rhodesian Zimbabwe, but um, there were there were reports that he was brutal to the Ndebele mm. uh, ethnic minority, and that there were atrocities going on. There, I mean, there he was always kind of brutal towards yeah. any sort of dissent. To dissent, yeah. Were there? A, I mean, you you focused a bit on the the costs of the 1989 uh, 13th World Festival of Youth and Students. Was there anything that North Korea gained from that in terms of prestige and solidarity, or was it all just a, a write off, a complete loss? I mean, you probably have to interview the, the folks who went there um, and visited it. I'm sure they came away with some positive, rem, uh, you know, memories of it. In terms of how North Korean people perceived it, that's when the North Korean economy was also starting to see some, the troubles were, were obvious. Um, so I'm sure that they weren't too happy with just how, how much of their own financial resources were being put towards that event. In fact, when the North Koreans were building palaces and schools and other facilities in the third world, it really wasn't reported back to the North Korean people. It was only reported in the North Korean foreign language oriented press, like the Pyongyang Times, but in the Rodong Shinmun and the Korean language stuff, most of the times that was like, it, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of articles about that. I really had to really search for it. Um, to find any mention, but the Pyongyang Times and the more the English language material coming out of North Korea, it it talked about what North Koreans are doing in the third world quite a bit, yeah. and I and I find that I found that interesting. The North Koreans, for example, they in addition to building facilities, they also sent mass games instructors to Africa, and so they were teaching. African governments, the importance of mass games, the importance of physical fitness, the importance of these like uh, mass gymnastics and calisthenics events, because it was a way to build patriotism in these uh, nascent post-colonial regimes. And so there are North Korean mass games instructors in a number of countries in Zam Zambia and Togo, uh, Nigeria, Uganda. Uganda, yeah, in Somalia. Um, it actually began in Somalia, the North Korea, the fascination with North Korea mass mm. games. So yeah, it, they were North Koreans were they were really active in Africa during the Cold mm. War era. Tell us now what, what remains of all that now in Africa. Are there any mass games still going on? Are there any you know, of course there are there are definitely monuments and statues that North Koreans have built, but yeah, what's the, the long term uh, impact of all that uh, that wooing of Africa. Well, in the uh, Zimbabwean official primary school curriculum, they still have mass games oh. as part of it. So there is 
kind of still a North Korean influence, but there's no displays. Yeah. Yeah. There's no North Korean math games instructors there anymore, but in terms of what North Korea does in Africa now, this is primarily illicit activities like trafficking ivory and rhino horn, uh, also selling, uh, counterfeit, uh, drugs and, um, selling weapons as well. Yeah, the big uh, difference here, I guess, is that this is all for economic gain, isn't it? That there's no sense in which this is being done for altruistic reasons or, or out of solidarity. Yes. Yeah, that's the big switch. Is mm. it switch from solidarity to purely economic motives? And it's because the regime in Pyongyang needs hard currency. Yeah. There was a recent documentary, I'm sure, as you know, called The Mole. Yeah, and in that film, they 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 talked about how they're going to go to Uganda and kind of like yeah, I think they were going to sell weapons there, and they're like, yeah, Africa's great because it has lax sanctions enforcement. Yeah, Um, and that's just how the North Koreans see Africa now. Unfortunately, they just see it as a place where they can do nefarious, illicit activities. As we come close to the end of the interview here, I wonder. In the first paragraph of your concluding chapter, you have two very interestingly contrasting quotes from a Peruvian poet. Maybe you can help me with the pronunciation. Dinara Carnero Checa? Yeah, there you go. Good pronunciation. That's Could you read that paragraph for our listeners until the end of the second quote, please? Sure. Yeah, that's it's that this is actually one of my most favorite paragraphs of the book. In the early 1980s, historian John Halliday asked Gennaro Canara Cheka, a radical Peruvian writer and frequent traveler to the DPRK, who published a book on the country in 1977 entitled Korea, Rice and Steel, his honest opinion of North Korea. Cheka replied, quote, they fought the North Americans. They have done incredible things to the economy. It's the only third world country where everyone has good health, good education, and good housing. Halliday then asked Cheka his view of North Korea as a poet. Cheka said, quote, is the saddest, most miserable country I've ever been in my life. As a poet, it strikes bleakness into my heart. That is, yeah, that is an incredible contrast. How do you think it was possible for Cheka to reconcile those two views? I mean, you said that he visited North Korea many times. So presumably he kept going even after he had that bleakness struck into his heart. How did he put them together? I know. I actually think that's how a lot of people saw North Korea. When you are a struggling country that had just emerged from colonialism, you want some sort of developmental guideline. You want, you need some sort of model to emulate and admire. And North Korea, at least on the surface, looked great to a lot of countries. It had rapid industrialization. Its economy was relatively good up until the mid-1970s. It had really high literacy rates, a really high doctor to uh, population ratio. It had a lot of things that a lot of third world countries would like to to emulate and admire. And some of those things are still there. For example, North Korea still has a a huge number of doctors for Mm -hmm. a small population. But at the same time, the system of North Korea is puritanical, it's brutal, and it's repressive. And that, at the end of the day, is what costs North Korean influence in the third world, is its own system. Its system is just so draconian and so dystopian that inevitably it would turn people off. 
you know, it's just, it's unfortunate that a lot of third world countries, they had to choose between you know, Western led global capitalism, which tends to kind of rip third world countries off for natural and financial resources, or they had Soviet style socialism, which yeah. also came with its own uh, dysfunctionality and human rights issues. And so North Korea, for a lot of these countries seemed like a, an admirable third way. Mm. And unfortunately, it just turned out to be a third way that was even more brutal than the Soviet style socialist system. This um, polarized assessment by Cheka of, you know, sort of North Korea, good on economy, uh, but sad on culture. Have you seen echoes of that in, in other uh, third world people's assessments of, uh, of North Korea having visited there? Yes, quite a few. It um, just coming to mind here, Eldridge Cleaver. And the reason why I include Eldridge Cleaver as a member of third world is the Black Panthers always talked about how African-Americans were a colonized people as mm. well, and that they were part of the third world. So he actually later on talked about just how he he actually missed the police of Oakland, California, yeah. because the police of North Korea were just so much more brutal. Yeah. And as you, I mean, the, the police of Oakland obviously were not kind to the Black Panthers. Right. And in addition, you have a lot of foreign leaders who just talked about how detached North Koreans were from kind of like the reality. So for example, North Korean diplomats, they went to Yemen and they told the Yemeni, like, why don't you have portraits of your own leader up? Right. up? And the North Yemeni were like, we don't do that here. It was just kind of this detachment that left a lot of third world guests and a third world officials really just uh, unhappy with mm. North Korea. They thought North Korea was going to be a unique third way of development, but it actually turned out to be the most dystopian version of revolutionary socialism. I'm reminded also um, uh, that uh, the former leader of Libya, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, also liked to portray himself as offering a third way and, and having you know, his own book uh, the green book that he put forward as, you know, here I am, I've got my own ideology. It's not capitalism, it's not communism, it's somewhere in between. Was he uh, somewhat of a rival in Africa for, you know, for having influence on African countries to uh, to Kim Il-sung? You know, I actually don't really mention Libya like at all in my book. It'd be fascinating. I don't know a whole lot about Gaddafi um, mm. and his history as a third way of development. I mean, I mean, there are, there are a number of countries that kind of uh, portrayed themselves as a third way. Cuba did that. Yugoslavia did that. The kind of the, the most interesting and, and I guess the longest lasting influence of this third way of development in Africa was Cuba. Yeah. Uh, Cuba still sends doctors to Africa. For example, they sent doctors to help fight the Ebola uh, epidemic. Yep. There are Cuban doctors now in Africa helping to fight the COVID pandemic. Um, and if you just compare Cuba and North Korea's influence in Africa, one has really had a profound humanitarian impact on that continent. And it's not the North Koreans, it's the mm. Cuban. Um, yeah. Benjamin, what's your wide angle, big picture view of North Korea today? How should we understand that country now in the post-Cold War world? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, yeah, you've how, got a minute to answer it. <laughs> all right. Um, how should we perceive North Korea now? I really hope that the North Korean people one day will be free. 
And I really do not think that they can experience freedom on the, under the Kim family regime. But North Korea has figured out that uh, kind of how to be part of the big boy players of the world. And that's by having a nuclear arsenal, a sophisticated nuclear arsenal. And so North Korea, I think, as Victor Child once put, is the land of lousy policy options for Washington. On one hand, you can't force denuclearization of the regime of, the, of North Korea. But on the other hand, it is a very belligerent, a very aggressive actor in the national arena that is not, that is different from even countries like China and Russia. When you use a WMD grade nerve agent into inter, in an international airport, yeah. it's just, it's a different kind of country. And, you know, I don't have a formula for how to solve this issue. No one does. Any expert that says that they have the secret to help, to solving the North Korea problem, they're lying. I mean, this is a this is the, the one of the hardest foreign policy issues mm. for the US government and for many other countries around the world. It's not as if Beijing is happy with what North Korea has right. been like for the last 20, 30 years. Um, I think there needs to be some sort of carrots and sticks for enticing North Korea. I don't think you can just beat them over the head with sanctions repeatedly. Mm. I think we've kind of reached the end point of sanctions on North Korea. But at the same time, I, I don't think you can just sign a peace treaty with North Korea and say, oh, we're good. Like, yeah, you can have nuclear weapons. We recognize you as a nuclear weapon state. Like, you're dandy and we're going to release sanctions on you. And, you know, you're going to behave you know, just like an ordinary nation state. I, mm. I don't think that'll work either. So it's a really complex foreign policy issue for countries all around the world. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I just hope that the North Korean people will get a better life uh, soon, but I just don't think they can do it under Kim Jong-un. Well, and that brings us to the end of our interview. I want to thank you once again for coming on the show, Dr. Benjamin Young. No, oh, thanks, Jack. Well, I appreciate it. I hate to end the interview on a downer like that. <laughs> no, it, it, unfortunately, that's that's real life sometimes, isn't it? And I, I want to, but on a positive note, I want to recommend to our readers to check out your book, Guns, Guerrillas, and the Great Leader, North Korea and the Third World, 1956 to 1989, published by Stanford University Press and available for just $28, as you uh, said, at all good booksellers online and off. And I wish you good luck with your uh, future research. Thank you, Jacko. I really appreciated talking to you today. And, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a joy to be on a podcast that I've listened to many times on my, uh, on my drives here in uh, South Dakota. As I like to say on American radio, long-time listener, first-time caller. Yes, definitely. <laughs> thank, thank you, Jacko. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Uh, thanks as always to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the echoes, extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs> <laughs>